Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. Matthew 20, that's where we'll pick up this Easter morning. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyards. Day laborers are as old as crops. Now when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard and then he, all, and he went out about the third hour, which is like six, six o'clock in the morning, and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you also go into the vineyard. And whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. And again, about, he went out about the sixth hour, which is like nine o'clock, and the ninth hour, which is like noon, and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour, which is like two o'clock, he went out and found others standing idle and said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day? And they said to him, because nobody's hired us. And he said to them, you also go to the vineyard, and was whatever is right, you will receive. So in context... If we're in this series of teachings right before uh, Jesus goes to the Pharisees and ultimately to the cross, we have the last things that Jesus wanted to teach his disciples uh, before he was going to die and, and, and be resurrected. Um, he's, I think, in hope, without opening their eyes to the resurrection, he's hoping beyond hope his disciples can just get it, and they can get it without the need of the resurrection. Um, and they can understand what this is. He's taught what the kingdom of heaven is in the Sermon on the Mount. He's demonstrated how to behave in the kingdom of heaven. He's told them how to interact with each other in the kingdom of heaven. And then came this question back in chapter 18, who's the greatest? How do we get the most position in this new kingdom? And they're thinking of an earthly kingdom. They're thinking Jesus is going to conquer the Romans. And they want their place. They want their, their position in that. And they're following him with the hope of reward. And Jesus answers that question back in 18, and he says, if you really want to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, get rid of stumbling blocks for other people. Go after the lost one instead of the 99. Peter asks him, how many times will you forgive? And again, it's part of the same answer. If you want to be the greatest, just forgive forever. Don't stop forgiving. Well, that's like a journey song. And then in chapter 19, um, they ask, the Pharisees come at him with divorce, and he says, look, the whole point of the kingdom of God is to stop doing things that are wrong and start doing things that are good and holy. If you need to be single, be single. If you need to be married, be married. Oh, and by the way, bring the kids to me. Bless the kids. And he shows them that his love of the kids is part of how to become the greatest in the kingdom of God. We need, what do we need to do to be saved? Comes the rich guy in chapter 19, and he says, if you, if you really want to be saved, get rid of all your idols. Come follow me. So Matthew chapter 19 ends on that note. The, the disciples say, see, we've left and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? It's the same kind of question as how do we become the greatest? How do we get the most? Um, and they're still thinking in the flesh in that degree. At the very end of Matthew 19, verse 29, he says, anyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit the kingdom of, the inherit eternal life. The promise of everything he's offered is uh, eternal life is what you get. 
That's your pay. That's your denarius. Denarius. If you do what these things are, then you get the kingdom of heaven. It's really not about how much you get past that point. So it's the same flow of thought. Jesus is promising God's reward to his disciples. He's, there is a reward that he's promising, but the distribution of the reward is still in question. Okay, and, and this is the economy of the kingdom of heaven. How do we get as much as we can? And that's an extremely human thought. And you wonder if some degree, if God gave us that drive to get as much as we can, but Satan, that's part of the fall. It got corrupted. But when we get into the kingdom of heaven, we should still want to serve our king as much as we can. But we're not doing it for ourselves. We just transmute that into something else. So this, then we get this parable, right? And obviously Jesus is being figurative here, right? This is a metaphor. Just like you, you can't like give up your father and then get a hundred fathers. That's not the point of that last verse, right? The point is we can't outgive God. God will reward our behavior here on earth, but how he does it is his business, Notice, uh, well, yeah, the idea of getting spiritually, just the rewards that we get versus earthly rewards. You can have thousands of earthly wins as you go through your life, but having peace in your spirit is worth all thousand of those things. Like the, the exchange rate isn't the same as it is with the world. Like how do you leave all these things for God's sake and then receive back? Well, Sometimes, like, for instance, we have a church family where we hang out and we talk. And, like, try telling that to people who don't go to a church like that. We study the Word of God. We sing some songs, just like every other church. But then we actually eat a meal together. Then we talk for a while. And you think, I would change that for anything else this world has to offer. In fact, my hope would be that my biological family would come join me on Sunday and join my church family. Wouldn't that just be the greatest thing in the world? That you have both of those families coming together and I, honestly, I think that's what God wants too. It, it's the kingdom of God where we just encourage each other. We love each other. How do you even measure that against what the world has to offer? How do you measure that? And you don't. I remember when Steph got her kidney stones, she would, uh, we, we would have a number of people from our church family that brought over meals, that sent notes, that just called you and talked to you on the phone when times were like, it was an amazing thing to watch the body of Christ come together around somebody and just take care of them in, in a way that sometimes we don't see in the world. And then he ends chapter 19 with many who are first will be last and the last will be first. This is kind of a warning to his disciples. Like, don't you get this yet? Like, it's not about who's greatest. It's not about how you get the most. So, Verse 30 of chapter 19 is going to bracket this parable. So he's going to come back to say virtually the same thing after this parable. So this parable is about the first being last, the last being first. He's modeling it for me, showing them what it looks like. They say, what do we get? And Jesus says, you've got to dump that kind of thinking. It's not about what you get. It's about God's blessing that comes as God gives it, however he does. So these are the rewards. And if you don't shake this attitude of trying to achieve or be ambitious over each other, if you can't get rid of that, you're in danger of not getting to the kingdom of heaven because you just don't get the kingdom of heaven. You'll miss out on it. So what we do get from this parable, just a few points, the Lord needs lots of workers. Like notice the master of the, 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 vin, the landowner keeps going back out because there's so much work to be done at harvest season. You'll take as many human beings, just anything that breathes that can work in the field, you're going to get them. 
And the kingdom of God works a lot the same way. God will take anyone and everyone who wants to be in the kingdom of God. It's a completely open door. And he says at the beginning of the parable, the kingdom of heaven is like. So it is like this. It is like a landowner going out and asking people to come into his fields. And then you come into his fields and you work for that exchange. And the exchange is eternal life. So it's the same cost. Some get more, some get less. Mark puts this in the present tense and Matthew puts it in the future tense for what it's worth. So Mark sees this kingdom of heaven not being something after this life, right? He, he frames it as this is part of this life. This is how this works right now. So when the landowner comes out and says, why have you been standing here idle all day? There's a note of surprise. Like there's tons of work to do. Why are you not working? And the landowner kind of comes out with that, that, that tone and he, and he tells them also to go out into the vineyard. And the reason the landowner's doing this is because there's a, there's a race against time here. And in the ancient world, when you did harvest, you had, when things got ripe, the next rainstorm that came would muddy those out and wash them away. So when you're harvesting the, these kinds of crops, you had to kind of do it before the rain hit. So you got as much harvesting done as you could possibly do when things were ripe. And the kingdom of heaven is like this too. We don't know when the Lord's coming back. So we have no idea when the harvest is going to be, when we're done collecting the harvest. So, and then a big note here. Um, he says to the first group, I'll give you a denarius a day. Those are his laborers. Those are like his full-time employees. Here's the deal, the contract we have. Notice that everybody else gets whatever is right you will receive. The landowner doesn't promise anything specific which does two things. One, those people are working with an unknown reward. And the second thing it does is the landowner retains the judgment call as to who he's going to pay what. Like if they came in and they were lazy and they didn't do much, the landowner could respond to that. But if they come in, no matter for how much time, if they come in and work hard, he can then reward them as he sees fit. And that's his business, right? So in verse 8, when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, I think it's neat that there's an owner of the vineyard and then there's a steward that runs things. I just, I just think that the way it's set up is interesting too. He said to his steward, call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And when those who, who came, and when those came who were hired about the 11th hour, they each received a denarius. Now this should shock us because he paid these people for just a couple hours of work at best. And he gave them the same amount that his hired full-time people got. So Jesus puts a twist in here in that he, he adds this last first idea in verse 8. And beginning with those folks is not how you would normally do this. A landowner would normally pay the people who worked the most and pay them off first. Here's the people that worked all day. You get this much and then reduce it from there. Reason being, what if you run out of money? Like what if you don't have enough to pay everybody? You want to make sure the people that got the least is where you'd have your debt. So Jesus turns it a little bit and then he says in verse 9 those who were hired about the 11th hour uh, the word were hired is not there because I'm making the point that there are his laborers he hired at the beginning but in verse 9 that the, the two words were hired read it without those they're not in the Greek it should read and when those and when those came who about the 11th hour they each reserved a denarius those who came at the 11th hour um there's a distinction then between the laborers in verse 2 and others in verse 3 and in verse 6. 
first group was promised money. The other groups were promised whatever they deserve. So God promises to honor those who seek him. He always has. And what we get is this example of a landowner being incredibly generous. If my people who are called by name, my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal the land. Second Chronicles 7.14. The promise has been the same from the Old Testament to the New Testament. God will reward anyone who comes to work in that field, anyone who joins the kingdom. But when the first came, verse 10, the first being the first people that were employed, the first people that were on board, these are the people that have been serving the Lord since they were born, or some read that as the first are the Jewish people, the first people to follow Yahweh. And the Jewish people maybe think they get more than the Gentiles. Another way to read this is like the people that do more in the church than the people who sit in the back row, right? They're the ones that are doing all the labor and, and doing all the work all day. And, you know, there's different ways to read who the first are. But when the first came, they supposed they'd receive more and likewise received each a Daenerys. So when they'd received it, they complained against the landowner, saying these last men have worked only one hour, yet you made them equal to us who have borne the burden in the heat of the day. All right. The problem here is that they're thinking as these people who only worked an hour get a full Daenerys, maybe the landowner is going to be generous with us too and we're going to get more. And that's a super realistic thought. There's no reason why not to think that. In fact, the disciples who have been following Jesus from the beginning, there's no human, worldly, earthly reason not to think, well, we're going to get more because we've been with Jesus since the start. We're going to get a higher rank. And Jesus is trying to dispel that idea here because it's these workers that are actually getting frustrated. They're getting upset that people that show up later get, you know, the same thing they do. So the essence here is that there's presumption that comes with working in the kingdom. And this is true of people dedicated, doing the work, um, helping out, tithing, that you think you deserve more in the kingdom of God. But the reality is you're doing all those things, I hope, because God called you to do them. And he gave you a reward for it. You're going to get eternal life. That's, a pretty, that's more than a denarius. So you'd think that exchange would be outstanding. Notice they add in the fact that they worked in the heat of the day. <laughs> like, they did the hard, grueling part. And if anybody's done farm labor, like, it's great in the morning. You want to get up at 5 a.m. and get out there because the dew's on the ground, the air is clean, you can get a lot of work done. But when it hits noon, 3 o'clock in the Middle East, you do not want to be out doing work. Like, it's the horrible part. But at the harvest season, you're doing work even when it's hard. And some of that work isn't easy. It takes tough, gritty people to do it. So why do the idle people get to participate in the same reward that these people do? And I just want to point out, like, I just don't think that's that horrible of a thought. I think that's a really reasonable, natural thought. Like, I'm kind of with the disciples on this. This is a twisted little parable. But that's because in my flesh, I'm not getting it. And I got to switch this a little bit. And Jesus is basically teaching Ezekiel 18. And I'm going to make two references to Ezekiel 18. So if you want to flip to the left in your Bibles, uh, you're welcome to. In Ezekiel 18, it says, at verse 21, But if a wicked man turns from all his sins which he's committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is lawful and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions which he's committed shall be remembered against him because of the righteousness which he's done. He shall live. So God basically says that there's people who live lawfully their whole life, but then they sin and they come to God with a sick heart and they think they deserve everything, but they're actually going to die. 
And then he flips it with that Ezekiel thing and he says, there's other people that have sinned their whole life and right at the end, they're going to they're gonna ask for forgiveness and I'm going to give it to them. So God's promise isn't just Jesus in the New Testament. This is Old Testament God too. This is the deal. If you turn and repent and, and head towards Jesus, you shall surely live and you shall not die. That's the promise. That's the wage. So if you live under the law, it is reasonable to get what you deserve. If everything's lawful, then when you do something wrong, you're punished for it. It's about your character under the law. It's about who you are under the law and how you've behaved under the law. So good people are going to work and toil and strive and self-judge to never break the law because then you're right with the law. And what ends up is that you work really, really hard and you get a lot less than you deserve because you can go into the courthouse and say, hey, I've obeyed the law for 10 years and the lady sitting at the front desk is just going to raise an eyebrow at you. You don't get anything for following the law. There's no extra benefit other than that you don't lose your rights. Under grace, there's an entirely different system and this parable really shows this. Under grace, thank God, we don't get what we deserve. It's opposite. In the law, you get what you deserve. Under grace, you don't get what you deserve. Under the law, it's about our character. Under the grace, it's about his character. It has nothing to do with us. Under the law, we work, toil, and strive. Under the grace, we appreciate, we praise, and we serve. But there's work on both sides. We're just grateful. Everything we do, we do it for joy and for the love of the Lord. Not for a reward, but because of the Lord and who he is and who his character is. Because he died on a cross for our sins, we give him everything we got. And we're just blessed to do it. It doesn't matter if we get any reward beyond Jesus' grace. Because that's all that should be sufficient for us. And that's the point the landowner makes. Verse 13. And, but he answered one of them and said, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what's yours and go your way. I wish to give this last man the same as you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish to do with my own things? Or is your ev eye evil because I am good? The evil eye there goes all the way back in the Old Testament. It's a way to say that you're jealous, you're envious, you got an evil eye. You're looking at things wrong. So the landowner steps in. No, remember the steward was handing out the wages. But the landowner steps in. It had to be really fun for the steward to watch those first people get a denarius because their eyes would light up and they'd be like, this is way more than I deserve. Thank you so much. And there had to be all this blessing. And then you got the people that worked all day, you know, the ragged group, sweaty, hot, and they're just grumbling in the corner. So the landowner steps in and says, friend. The word friend there is hetarios. It, it, it's not the same as friend phylos. There's a different Greek word for like my affection, like I have affection for you. You're my friend and we care about each other. That's phylos, brotherly love. Hatarios is acquaintance or someone I know. Look, person that I know. Like, I, you've worked for me in my field, but we're not... Suddenly there's something that's come between him and these people. He's not saying good friend. He's just saying friend. There's nothing unfair in grace. It doesn't break the law. There's nothing... Jesus would never do anything that would break the law, but he would fulfill it and go beyond it easily. So... It, they're his things to give, which is God's going to give reward to whoever he pleases. No explanations given. He doesn't need to give an explanation. He's the landowner. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, Isaiah 55, 9, so are my ways higher than your ways. 
My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. My stuff, I'll hand it out like I please. And it's none of your business. This is the same kind of back off my territory that God gave to Job in the end of the book of Job. Watch out, this is my territory. I'm going to give to people what I think they need or what I think they deserve, and I'm going to give it as I please. And this is true in, in rain, and it's true in sunshine. One question for us is, again, trying to resonate with the workers, trying to resonate with the laborers, trying to resonate with the steward and the landowner, and just feel this, is if we're workers in God's field, can we accept what he's going to give us? And maybe he's going to give us things we didn't expect because God's smarter than us. He's more creative than we are. All the libraries in the world don't add up to God. All the science in the world is not more intelligent than God. So when we hear things that are against God's word from those sources, all of the wisdom in Hollywood is not greater than, well, it's not greater than my dog, really, but God's greater than all of these things. They're his things. He's smarter. Why would we get jealous about it when some people are blessed more than others? Why would we worry about who's greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Our our entire disposition should be to serve the people around us, especially people we're trying to welcome into the kingdom. How can we help? How can we serve? What can we do? So verse 14, take what is yours and go your way. Don't miss the fact that there's a thinly veiled, get the heck out of my field right there. Go your way. In other words, maybe tomorrow when work kicks up, he's going to take the people that appreciated what they got. And he's not going to take the people like his laborers maybe just got fired there. And it doesn't say specifically, but I want to go back to Ezekiel 18 again. There's some that are good and then they sin and they die in it. And there's some wicked that repent and they're preserved. And then Ezekiel 18 says this, verse 22, none of the transgressions which he's committed shall be remembered against him because of the righteousness which he has done, he shall live. Yet the house of Israel says, the way of the Lord is not fair. Just like these laborers that worked all day. The house of Israel said, this isn't fair. O house of Israel, is it not my ways which are fair and your ways which are not fair? Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, says the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions so that iniquity will not be your ruin. Or at this sense, like with these, these day workers, like you got to repent of this. Get it out of your head. And he's talking to his disciples. These are people that are following Jesus. They believe in Jesus. They've given up everything to be with Jesus. Like he's talking to the devout right now, saying you've got to get rid of this idea that you're going to gain something by working harder or longer. It's not about what you do. It's about who I am. If you want fairness, you need to go to a public school. But God is not fair like that. He's fair the way he wants to be fair. And he's perfect in that. So there's a a level of faith and trust. Really, the faith and trust for me is not, is there a God? That's not faith and trust. Obviously, there's a God. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Plenty of evidence. I don't have to have a lot of faith there. I just have to have a brain. The faith is, do I trust the Lord God Almighty to be fair and just with judgment at the end of days? That hasn't happened yet. Is he going to see me for my sin? Or will the grace of Jesus cover my sin? That's what I need faith in. I have to have faith in his promises that they're true, nothing else. 
there's a little thing there, verse 16. And this is, again, he brackets this parable. So the last will be first, the first last. And then he adds this. For many are called, but few are chosen. What is that? Wait a second. Am I chosen or am I called? Like, that's the natural question. Which one am I? And we should be wondering to ourselves. Like, there were laborers and there were others. And Jesus brought them both into his field. And some were content, some weren't with what they got. So this parable applies the first to last principle of living under grace. Many are going to leave and sacrifice and give, give things up for the kingdom of God. Chapter 19, verse 30. We should be then doing that and sacrificing those things, giving up certain things that the world has with total joy. And we should do it because of our wages. We shouldn't just do it because we are beating ourselves up. We inherit an eternal kingdom after we die, and we get to be part of the kingdom of God before we die. That's phenomenal. And we do it for a good and a holy master who we have faith in. We trust him. So we don't worry about the person next to us. We don't worry about how hard people are working next to us or not working. It's really between us and the master. Do we accept the job, and do we do it with great joy? For many are called, but few are chosen. We can get three basic principles out of this. One, salvation is free, and if many are called, really we should say everybody's called. right? God's opened this up to the whole world. Two, we're not called to stand around. Everyone, the master, the landowner calls, he calls them into the field. There should be a change of action and position when we accept Christ and we, and we follow Christ. And then three, that idea that time is of the essence. Like, we got to get the harvest in. So this is one of those things. People are like, should we be sharing with our friends and family about the joy of Jesus? Or are we just waiting for the right opportunity? There should be a little urgency in us to do that. Like, do you know who Jesus is? Do you know what he gave to you? Do you know that he rose from the dead? He is risen. He is risen indeed. We should be doing that with such passion and love. We're not waiting on that to happen. If we get a thought, oh, maybe I should call that person I haven't talked to in 10 years, call that person. Don't wait on those things. If somebody says, we should pray about this, we say, let's pray right now. Let's not wait on these things. There should be an understanding that salvation's free. We're not called to stand around. We're called to work. And the time is of the essence. That work needs to happen with a little bit of um, circumspectness. Ephesians 5.15. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise people, redeeming the time for the days are evil. Don't be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. We should be walking like that. What does it matter if we're first or last? That's vanity. Turn our heart to humility, gratefulness, and everything else. I'm, I'm kind of beating this horse a few times, but it's such a big idea, and it's going right to the disciples. We have to embrace this idea, or I don't want to, you know, that idea of like, go your way. Like, God doesn't really want to deal with people that presume what they're going to get. God blesses all of us. He's generous. God is never going to be a debtor. He's, he's always going to reward good and faithful servants. I have no pleasure in death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. Like, God isn't about death. He's about life. And he gives life abundantly. So we have a generous God. And then it's interesting how he goes right from that concept. In verse 17, now Jesus going up to Jerusalem. We start this new section, but Matthew kind of paired that right next to this. These are his final teachings. Now Jesus going up to Jerusalem. By the way, any... Um, map direction you go to Jerusalem from, you're going up. It's, it's like being on top of the world. It's a great city. 
and everything you look at around it is lower than that. So you can kind of get a 360 perspective when you get into a tall building in Jerusalem. Now Jesus going up to Jerusalem took the 12 disciples aside on the road and he said to them, he has to pull them aside because at this particular point of year as we're getting ready for Passover, um, the roads would absolutely be packed. They would be crowded because all of Jerusalem, all of the Israelites are making kind of that trip to Jerusalem and most of them did it by foot. So when it says he had to kind of go to the side of the road, likely it's that the road was noisy, it was busy, there's donkeys and carts behind them. So if he wants to talk in a quiet kind of space, you'd have to kind of step off the road for a little while and take a break. Behold, verse 18, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes and they will condemn him to death and betray him to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify and the third day he will rise again. This is the, la the last time Jesus taught this back in uh, chapter 16 and 17. Peter took him aside, remember, and said, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. This time the disciples don't react at all, which tells me they're learning and they're growing. They don't try to fight Jesus on this. He's saying the same teaching, and we have a very different reaction. He says, Behold, because this is the third time he's going to tell them this. This time, each time it's gotten more and more detail. In chapter 16, he said he would have to die. In chapter 17, he adds that he's going to get betrayed and then he's going to die. But here we get tons of detail. Like he lays it out. The idea of betrayal in this, this passage, which he, he adds to, uh, paradidomai, is this painful turning that he has to have. And you have to think that Jesus knows that this is coming. We talked about this yesterday. Jesus knows it's coming. How do you be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who's the first and who's the last? The first is going to be Jesus. And what Jesus has to go through to be the first in the kingdom of heaven is greater than any person's ever had to go through. It's not just dying on a cross. Lots of people were crucified. But the betrayal that happens the hurt of that. If you've been betrayed, I don't, you know, we all have different walks, but for those that have been betrayed, it hurts. It hurts when someone close to you that you broke bread with, that you've had over to your home, suddenly turns on you. It's painful. There's no way around it. Well, Jesus, even more so, he's living, eating, and breathing with these people. And when he's teaching this, Judas is sitting in the circle. And at this point, we're really close to Judas's betrayal. He's already framing Jesus as a bad guy and everything Jesus says. Judas is already like twisting that in his head. Oh, who does he think this guy is? He's already setting up to betray Jesus. That work is already happening. This is from Charles Spurgeon. He, he has some great stuff on this, by the way. And still he's betrayed. If the gospel dies in England, right on its tomb, betrayed. If our churches lose their holy influence among men, write on them, betrayed. What we care for, what care do we have for infidels? What care do we have for, for those who curse and blaspheme? They can't hurt Christ. His wounds are from those he receives from the house of his friend. And I think Charles Spurgeon is basically saying, you know, the, the sad part about Jesus, the people that betrayed him were his own disciples. They were the first betrayers, and they end up being the last. Right? It's just that Matthew records all this because it's important for us to know Jesus 
went to the cross willingly. Nothing stops Jesus. The only thing that stops him is his need to teach his disciples on his way to death and pain. Right? He's still trying to coach them. You think of what this means as a teacher. Even as he knows fully what's going to happen to him, he's still more concerned with his disciples' learning than his own well-being. Think of this. Mercy and grace. He knows, he's not guessing here, everything he just laid out, he has no control over. He will be betrayed, he says. He doesn't guess that, he knows it. But he can't control it directly in his human earthly form. He's going to get betrayed to the priests. There's no guarantee of when he gets betrayed who he's going to get sent to. It says they'll condemn him. He's actually predicting what the priests will will come to their conclusion when they go through their judgment and give their verdict. There's other alternatives to that. He could have been given a fine. He could have been given jail time. He could have just been like kicked out of the temple. But he's predicting he'll be delivered to the Gentiles. Why does he predict he'll be delivered to the Gentiles? They don't need to. In Acts chapter 7, the Sanhedrin, they kill Stephen all by themselves. They don't need to send anybody to the Romans. So Jesus predicts he'll get sent to the Romans. They're going to mock and scourge him. He doesn't control the Romans. The Romans, he, you know, directly in his flesh, in his incarnate form, he can't force the Romans to scourge him, but he knows that they will. He's going to rise again. And you can't, no one that I know of can raise themselves from the dead unless God gets involved. And when Jesus dies in his incarnate form, he, he is in, then transfigured or transformed back into his godly form and he raises himself from the dead. He predicts he'll be crucified. Romans were the only ones that did the crucifixion, so it's kind of like predicting the Romans are going to get you. But typically the Romans put people in jail, especially when it had to do with religious matters. They didn't crucify people unless they were thieves, unless they did something wrong. The Romans actually, you know, we think of the Romans as being kind of harsh with Jesus. Really, for 800 years, the Roman Empire and their court system was known for being fairly just. Paul appeals to the Roman court system and uses the law to protect his life. So the Romans are going to break their rules and crucify a, guilty, a, guilty, a guiltless person. Like, so these, each of these predictions that he makes get more and more like really incomprehensible. Like, Why would that happen? Overall, he's going to suffer, and to be the first in the kingdom of God, he's going to be a suffering servant for us. He's going to suffer for everyone in the kingdom of God. I can only suffer for like two, three people. I suffer for my wife. I suffer for my kids. Maybe I can, if I'm really holy, I can suffer for, you know, 12 people, 100 people at my church, you know. But Jesus suffered for everybody. Every detail here of what he's going to go through, pair that up with the workers that had to work through the heat of the day. Those laborers had to suffer through the heat of the day. It's not pleasant. And they're upset. I had to suffer so much, but I get, I get the same reward that these people who lived in Minnesota and sat on couches to study the word, they get the same reward I get. And that's true. Justin, Martyr, and us get the same reward. That's the deal. Thank goodness we get to sit down. Like, I'm so appreciative. I'm one of those 11th hour workers. I've had food in my belly my whole life. Right? I've never really had to suffer for the kingdom of God. I've had some people who don't like that I love Jesus so much and they think I'm a bit too gleeful about it. But my goodness, that's not suffering. That's just silly people around me. The point isn't to agonize over the struggle and the pain. 
Jesus says right at the end, and he will rise again. He's supposed to put the focus on Easter morning. And, and again, I did not plan this. Like we literally like hit this, this teaching, but I've never heard this kind of Easter message. The idea that he did it willingly. And I love that we're hitting this chapter this week. Hebrews 12, 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He didn't endure the cross because he wanted to just be all macho and endure a bunch of pain and be all manly. He endured the cross because he saw what was coming after it. Despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, for consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed striving against sin. That was what the writer of Hebrews was saying to the Christians that were suffering and and enduring persecution. You have not even gotten close to what Jesus went through. Don't even begin to complain about your labor and your pay until you get to the level where you're actually suffering bloodshed. In the end, the joy, the prize is what we work for. It's what we labor for. It's not about how much we get. It's about the fact that we get to be part of God's kingdom. Do you not know that those who run the race run all run, but everyone rece- but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you might obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we do it for an imperishable crown. When we get into the kingdom of God, we run a race. We're supposed to go at it like a warrior, like an athlete. Like this is something we're going to be intentional about. We take the time for it, not to punish ourselves, but for the joy set before us. We love doing it. Good athletes don't work out because they like pain. They work out because they like to win. <laughs> and that's the, they like to compete, and they like to go at it. I remember going out to eat with my pastor once, and the waitress comes up to the table, and she's nice enough, and she's making a connection, whatever, and she's doing it, and she's doing it for the money. But my pastor just turns and says, you know what, we're going to pray for our meal. Do you want to pray with us? And she goes, and I was just shocked. She goes, yeah, sure, we'll pray. So she joined us to pray for the meal. It was phenomenal. And I was just like, dang, he's a better athlete than me. Like he just won in that situation. God looks at the two workers sitting at the table. He totally kicked my butt in that race, but he didn't get me next time, right? As good athletes, we are running a race and it's not about (laughs) beating each other, but it is about like putting our game on. Iron sharpens iron. Like we want to get better at what we do. It's why we hang out at church on Sunday because we learn how to talk about our faith from each other so we can go out in the world and do it with people and bring them in so the lost might be saved. So amazing. We don't wrestle in vain. We do it for a good master. We do it for a sacrificial king. He gave everything for us. So we shouldn't stir ourselves up and worry about what other people are getting. We should just think, how do I get that too? How do I work harder? The greatness then that we get in the kingdom of God, this has been a three-chapter cycle. It comes from service to others and service to the king. Verse 20, we're going to drive that point home with the next thing. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons. Zebedee's sons are James and John. So this is their mom. People think this might be Salome, which is Mary's sister. So, you know, Jesus got cousins. So she's coming and saying, well, Jesus, these are your cousins. Shouldn't they be elevated to high places in the new kingdom? Like David took his friends and people he knew and elevated them in his kingdom. So maybe Jesus will do the same thing. So the mother of Zeb, we're going to call her Mama Thunder because James and John got called the sons of thunder. So she must be thunder. 
Like she's not even Mama Thunder. She's just the Thunder, right? So, and we know that she's hanging out with this crew. So in, it, she's at the cross in chapter 27. Like James and John's mom was a follower of Christ. I don't know if that means she was a disciple. We'll let the people debate that. But she was there and in this. She's also on the way up to Jerusalem. She's walking with the disciples right now. She's part of that crew. So she comes up and came, came to him with her sons. <laughs> this is funny. She's dragging along her boys, kneeling down and asking something from him. She comes with the same humility that we saw um, Abigail give David. And, and we, this kneeling down and asking for something is really putting yourself in a position where you're convincing them to say yes before you've even asked the question, right? Oh, you're so great. You're just so wonderful. Can I get something from you? Like kids get really good at this. She's part of the group that gets named later um, in chapter, oh, I already said that, chapter 27. She wants her sons to have position in the new kingdom, and she's probably still thinking it's going to be a kingdom after they wipe out the Romans. Like this, she wants them to have position. She's never rebuked for this, I don't think, but she's asking in faith because she believes Jesus will be the king. And she wants what's good for her sons. There's nothing wrong with that. And he said to her, what do you wish? <laughs> Unlike some of the people in the Old Testament, somebody will bow down and say, oh, I, you know, I have a question for you. And they'll say, what do you wish? I'll give you anything you want. They'll make a vow after that. But Jesus doesn't do that. He's just like, what do you want? <laughs> he makes them say it without any vow on his part. What do you wish? And she said to him, grant that these two sons of mine might sit, one on your right hand, the other on your left, in your kingdom. There's faith in that request. She believes there's going to be a kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, you don't know what you're asking. I read a really sensitive tone in that. I read a very gentle, patient Jesus. Like he's not rebuking her. You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? And they said to him, we are able. So he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and my left hand is not mine to give, but it's to those for whom it is prepared by my Father. I think it's interesting that God has, when he's incarnate as a human, there's kind of a segregation there. Like Jesus still talks about the Father in heaven. I wonder if as God, Jesus is doing that so that we continue to treat God in heaven as he's modeling it for us more than anything else. The word grant there means to command in the Greek. Um, she wants to uh, command that these two sons of mine might sit. So she's expecting a conquest of some sort from Jesus. He says, you don't know what you ask. In the same sense that his disciples are struggling with some things here before they see the resurrection, sometimes we might stumble with the same things. Like, when God said, when we make a prayer for something, I think there's a lot of times when God says, you really don't know what you're asking because God's doing a work right here and we'll pray for something that we think is in God's will. And I'm pretty sure God often has that reaction to us. You just don't know what you're asking. You know, take this person out of this trial and God actually put them in the trial because he wants them to learn something. So when we're praying to get him out, maybe we're praying against God's will or vice versa. Like, I think there's a lot of times where when we pray, we should really be seeking what Jesus or what God wants from us in our prayers, not just to pray for everything we want, even if those things are fairly reasonable. So he says the right hand, and 
thrones are already being promised to people. He's already promised in chapter 19, verse 28, that these disciples would sit on thrones. She's just asking for them to get the right thrones. And, you know, I, it's interesting. So she's, she is listening to what God says. Um, and, and notice one thing. When Mama Thunder asks this for her sons, notice that Jesus answers the sons directly. Like he stops letting her be an intercessor for them. In other words, either she dragged them along and he talks to them, or they pushed her into asking, you ask Jesus for this, because we don't want to look prideful. We want to look like we're trying to be servants. But, so you ask us for this position. Um, that's a, that, either way, it's kind of manipulative. So, but notice that Jesus kind of answers to all the disciples and makes this a teaching opportunity. They say we are able, and that's going to be not true right now. Like, they're later on going to be able to do this, but it's after the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost. When God indwells them, they become able to do the same things that God has done for them. Prior to that, they're going to struggle with it. They're going to abandon him here in a, in a couple days. They're going to leave him. They're going to not even stay awake while he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. They're going to utterly fail in all ways to drink the cup. Also notice the imagery there of drinking the cup um, and being baptized are your two major things in the Christian faith that we still do. We still take communion. We still get baptized. And these are symbolic of the things that we are willing to do for God. In fact, this is a great communion passage, right? Are you willing to suffer and die like Jesus suffered and died? Okay, drink the cup. If you're not willing to do, if you haven't counted that cost, then don't drink the cup. That's a pretty hardcore communion message, but that's what he's talking about when he talks about the cup. We have different callings. Here's the thing with James and John. James is going to be the first one to be killed for his faith from among the 12 disciples. On the exact opposite end of the spectrum, the only one of the 12 disciples to not die of being martyred but dies of old age is John. The two sons of thunder are first and last. So don't miss how that connects to what we're talking about right now. Here's the question. Are we ready for either extreme? Are we ready to go through trials or are we ready to live to a ripe old age and die as an old person in the name of Christ? Will we take either one? Are we laborers in the vineyard that will be happy with whatever God gives us? I'm thinking John wasn't happy. There's some indication that he actually tries to get himself martyred. Because all his buddies have gotten killed for Christ. He never gets the privilege. He gets sent to an island, and he has to take care of Jesus' mom. And his ministry is taking care of Jesus' mom and writing, right? And, and all of the other disciples got to be an example for the rest of the Christians. He got to watch the church grow from 12 disciples to thousands of disciples. I'm thinking John was content with that. Like at some point, he wrestled with his own desire to be a martyred person and said, you know what, I'm going to take what God gave me. Are we, re are we ready to do either? So God uses tr trials because he wants warriors and warriors need training. He says, it's not mine to give. Is an indication here, again, I talked a little bit about Jesus and the Father still being self-referential here, but it speaks to how much God humbled himself in an incarnate form and taking on all of the limitations of humanity when Jesus became a human. So as a human, he simply isn't at that same level. God has reduced himself for us in that sense. Yet his disciples, he's humbling himself. His disciples are self-promoting themselves. There's a contrast. And when the ten heard it, see, this is, this is the thing. 
Verse 24, and when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two builders. Sounds kind of like the day workers, right? Like, wait a second, what are you doing thinking you're going to be first? Like, James and John were not the first disciples to show up. How come you get the first two chairs? Here's the other thing. When you get self-promoting people around you, it makes everybody mad. Like, there's nothing worse than somebody in the group angling to get the best piece of pizza. All it makes you want to, oh, this, maybe this is just me. All it makes me want to do is get up and like say, hey, you know, I want the best piece of pizza. And that's what's happening here. All the other, the James and John get, get the knock for this kind of question, but all 12 disciples are displeased with it because they all suffer from the same sin. They all want to be promoted. But Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and those who are exercised who are great exercise authority of them, yet it shall not be so among you. Whoever desires, but whoever desires to be great among you, let him be your servant. Boom, we land the point. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Oh, there's so much here theologically. Do we get it? Just at face value, do you get the point? you got to shake this idea of what you're going to get and start thinking of what you're going to give. We're not like the world, and there's no shortcuts to that. It's about time and obedience to God. It's not a, there's no way to get a shortcut to greatness. The church is going to be different from the world. You can't leapfrog that point here. Honestly, I've heard people do this whole, well, Christ in culture, and we can, you know, no, the church is not like the world anywhere, ever, and, and, and never was meant to be. It's different. We might be in a culture where we're not getting attacked as a church, but the church is not the world. It's a very different kind of space. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, Joshua 1.8, but you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe and do according to all that's written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. That's for the people of God. We do it differently. Our way to get ahead is meditating on the word day and night and doing what it says. That's our path. It always has been. And Jesus is just bringing that home. The Gentiles lord it. The Christians serve it, right? It's just totally different. Gentiles are over them. We come under them. Gentiles hold people up. <laughs> we, you know, or, or Gentiles push people down and we hold them up. We receive people. They exclude people. There's an encouraging in, in the church. There's a dividing in hatred in the world. It's so obvious and it's so different. They exercise authority. We exercise humility. Like if you're going to exercise, you practice it, right? And the Romans did this, right? They say, how much can I get? How much can I have? We say, how much can I give and how much can I help? So polar opposite. And that's what he's trying. I think that's the message Jesus is trying to beat into their head. We say, what are the hoops to get ahead? And they say, I just want to, where's the work that needs to be done? And they're completely different mindsets. So the ambitions of two of the disciples get all 12 of them worked up. What's amazing here is Jesus' grace. He just kind of goes, oh, okay, you just got to let this go, guys. <laughs> like, we're not going to get to a point where I'm going to teach you this before the resurrection. Like, you just got to let this go. And Jesus just teaches them with patience. I don't read any tone of frustration here again. Just count the cost, know your wages, be content with them. 
the desire to be great in the kingdom never gets rebuked. I think that's a huge point. It is okay for James and John's mom to want this. It's how they're going to get it that they have, they have to change. They have to change that disposition. Like our goal is to serve or even to the point where we turn ourselves into slaves. The, the word there for slave, well, I'll get into that in a second. In the Roman world that they live in, servants and slaves do not run things, right? So they're saying like in the Gentile world, here's who runs things is that it's the exercising of authority. But among you, the only authority is Jesus Christ. We don't actually have authority over one another. I think a lot of churches mess this up thinking that pastors have authority. We really don't. Ideally in the kingdom of God, we all serve Jesus Christ. I might be further ahead on that path than other people, but my job's just to say the Bible says this, the Bible says that, Jesus says this, Jesus says that. Whenever anybody comes to me with what the Bible or Jesus are talking about, I'm supposed to be, have a ready answer. And sometimes I say, give me a day, right? I want to research that a little bit. But my only job is to repeat to you what Jesus has already said. And if I do that faithfully, God says, thank you for your work. Here's a denarius. Like there's no authority in the church other than Jesus Christ. And that's really clear in verse 26. It shall not be so among you. There shall not be authority structures. This is why it confuses me when people get upset about authority in the church. Who's going to be in charge? They're missing the point just like the disciples are. They totally miss the point. It's not about who's in charge. It's about what God wants. And in fact, think of this. In the Roman world, to be a servant meant you were cursed. They actually felt like you were a spiritually cursed human being if you were in debt or if you were a slave. You were weak, you were pathetic, you were not worth talking to. If you're a slave in the Roman world, you don't make eye contact with your master or they'll just kill you for, for being, you know, above your station. In the world, the greatest people need service so they can feel how strong and rich they are. In God's world, the least people, the least need to be served because they're weak. Did I say that right? Right? So people strive for titles, elder, deacon, pastor, minister. How about slave? That's the title we're supposed to seek, slave. That's the one we're supposed to be ambitious for, to exercise. So Jesus does this in form. He made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, Philippians 2.7. He turned himself into a willing slave to humanity because he loved us. Jesus elevates this conversation. It's just so powerful. The word servant there in verse 26, we're going to go Greek on this, is diakonos. It means a deacon or a minister, the word servant. Diakonos, it's where we get the word deacon. Jesus takes it up a notch. It's not just, so to be a minister is to like, you know, bring food on a Sunday, right? To, be, to minister to others is to serve them. It's the same kind of word, right? So if I do something nice or, you know, you take me out to the, to the airsoft range and you choose to drive, you're ministering to me because I don't have to drive, right? That's a minister. Somebody who does something nice for somebody else. But then he changes it. Those that desire to be first, protos, in verse 27, should actually be a slave, doulos. It's, it's the opposite of protos. You should be last. 
You should be a bond servant and a life sacrifice. This is a huge idea that Jesus, we almost take this language for granted when we read the New Testament, but don't take it for granted here. He's introducing this idea. We should, instead of just being a servant, we should be a slave. He takes it up a notch. A, a, a doulos, a bond servant, is the last of all stations in the Roman world. It is the lowest of positions. Once freed in the Old Testament, a slave could choose to give their lives to a good master. I love this passage in the Old Testament. I'm a huge, the connection here is so wonderful, but Jesus makes it, so I'm going to go back to Exodus 21. But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to the judges, and he shall bring him to the door, the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. Think of that law in the Old Testament and what Jesus is calling himself right now. He's going to go to the doorpost and get himself nailed to it, literally. So it's not like a metaphorical thing that Jesus is becoming a bondservant. He's going to do it in a very physical way. The strength of, of the servant is that he honors a powerful master. If I'm a person that recognizes my master is good and holy and I choose to give my life to that person, I just elevated my life. Like the equation there is phenomenal. A, a, a slave in Exodus 21 that has a cruel master or a mean master or a fake master, you don't give your life to that person. You pack up your stuff and you run. You get the heck away. But when you recognize your master is good and you'll have your family, your wife and your children will have a good life living in this household, then you give everything to that person. And I, even that idea, like they're in front of the judges at the gate, and the, says, uh, the person says, I want to be a bondservant, puts his ear up to a doorpost, and his master comes in, puts the nails through the ear. Man, what a beautiful image. The blood flows down on the wood, and that blood is what seals the bondservants for life, for eternity. We only can honor, we can only be as big as the God that we serve. We're only as important as the master that we serve. Unless you all think you're masters, and that doesn't go very, because then you get a pretty small master if you're serving yourself. But if you serve the Lord God of eternity, you elevate yourself way beyond our current station. Any authority in the church is Jesus' authority. Any authority we have is to the degree to which we've nailed ourselves to Jesus. And we've gone to the cross with him. We've given our whole life and we're willing to die on a cross. The ambition should be then to follow Jesus, but Judas is sitting there hearing this and his ambition is to serve himself. Can we lay down our life so others can get out of the shackles and run to Jesus? Can we do it? Can we just say, my life means nothing outside of what God's going to make out of it? But he only eternal value I have is the degree to which I love my grandkids. I raised my children. I cared for the people in my fellowship. I brought strangers and I made them brothers and sisters. That's all that matters. To give his life as a ransom for many. Again, we can read over that because we say it every year at Easter. We say it all the time. But Jesus is introducing an idea. The Greek word litron, ransom, it means a price. And it's a price over and against any debt that was owed. This particular word ransom is often used for human beings. Because if I go into debt, like I actually become a slave to the person I'm in debt to. I have to go work it off. Like work prison. 
right? But it's my family can come along and say, okay, how much does Sean owe? And it's like a thousand bucks. Okay, we're just going to pay that so you can come back and work with us. So you can pay a Lytros, a Lytron, a price, a, a ransom that buys back time that has to be redeemed off a jail sentence, right? So Jesus is throwing this idea out here and the, the theological implications, the alignment with the Old Testament, the perfect fulfillment of the law that he's doing here goes back to Exodus 21. It goes, it goes back to Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers. He's fulfilling all of it perfectly. He's buying us literally because we owe a debt and he's purchasing our price and the price that he's going to pay is his own life which you could also do. If you had somebody that like was asthmatic and sickly and they owed a debt, a healthy brother could come in and say, I'll work that off for my brother and I'll pay that debt. And you could get that person who would maybe even die under the labor of the heat of the day. You could save them the labor. They could be an 11th hour worker. They could just show up at the end and pay the last couple pennies. So you could come in as a propitiation for that, that price and you could pay it. You could be a Lytron. Jesus is saying, I'm going to give my life as a Lytron for you. You owe a debt and I'm going to pay it. That's how the, first the last becomes first. I'm going to actually pay your debt. There's no question of the image here. Law demands justice for every single sin. Every godless thought, all vanity, all false worship. Law demands justice for it. And we serve a perfectly just and a good God. The cost doesn't disappear. It has to get paid. And that's just, and it's right, and it's good. We don't want a world where evil, evil goes unchecked. We want a world where all evil has to be paid. It has to be handled and made right. All thievery has to be reimbursed. That's the only good and holy world that a good and holy God can tolerate. So it would take an eternity to pay the debt that all of humanity has created when it comes to the debt that we owe under the law of justice. It, it, it's an endless amount. So any ransom that needs to be paid has to be an eternal ransom. It has to be of equal value. Again, like I just, on Easter, to think about what Jesus did on that cross under the law, it's amazing. There's no question about what Jesus is teaching his disciples. He came to pay a price on their heads. Don't worry about who's going to be the greatest. Worry about the price on your head and what needs to be done to pay it. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. This is Isaiah 53, verse 11, Old Testament. For he shall bear their iniquities, he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sins of many. Then Jesus responds to the least of these. He turns to these two guys that are blind, also cursed by the Romans. If you're blind, it must mean you did something wrong. So blind people were just left as homeless on the streets to starve to death. And that's how Romans dealt with blind people. They didn't go out of their way. There weren't social service programs. Now as they went out to Jericho, a multitude followed him. And behold, two blind men sitting by the road, when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. Now they're not just yelling as random people. Again, there's crowds on these roads. right? They would have been packed with people going up for Passover. So they got to yell over the noise. They use full humility. They proclaim Jesus as the Lord, the son of David. They have faith that he's going to be king. Son of David means he's going to sit on the throne of Israel. And then the multitude warned them that they should be quiet. You guys just shut up because you're blind people. You're the least of these. 
You don't matter. You're unimportant. And apparently Jesus, you know, has this mob following him now with all this noise on the road. This must have been quite a distraction for him to turn his attention because he's still working with his disciples, right? These two blind guys are also late to the show. They're coming at the end of Jesus' ministry. Right? They're 11th hour workers. They really don't deserve the same pay. They haven't done anything. So we're thinking that you know this might be the time. This is the only chance they might get to see Jesus. And they're right about that. Like This is the end of the ministry. And at the end of the ministry, these idle people sitting on the side of the road, the, the, the landowner says, why are you sitting here idle? You know? and, and, and Jesus you know, says, what do, you want from, what do you want me to do for you? In verse 32. And, 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 and the, even the disciples wouldn't have had a huge heart for blind people here in this part of the thing. But they cried out all the more saying, have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. When it's about mercy, not reward, these two blind guys get it. People tell me to shut up. I'm going to yell even louder. Like, I want mercy. I'm fighting for my life right now. And the only salvation I have, it's not my works. I'm a blind guy at the side of the road. The only salvation I have is Jesus Christ. So they get it more than anybody else. All the more they start yelling. But they cried out all the more saying, Having mercy on us, O son of David. So Jesus stood still and called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? So Jesus stood still. Nothing stops Jesus. But this chance to give mercy, it actually gets Jesus to stop his walk here. I, I just love that. What do you want for me to do to you? God's been asking that question forever. What do you want me to do for you? How can I help? How can I serve? Jesus is modeling for them how to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. What do you want me to do for you? What can I do to make your life better? He's just showing it to them. And he's done this all through Matthew. He teaches a concept and then he shows it to them. Here's what it looks like. The rich man says, what do I have to do to be saved? And, 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 and Jesus tells him, right? Here's what you need to do. It's very similar to how he responded to Mama Thunder. Like, what do you want? What do you need? And the disciples get the same salvation as the blind people are going to get. By the way, I think Jesus is aware that they're blind. So when he asks them, what do you want me to do for you? He's not assuming the blindness, but I'm pretty sure Jesus notices that they're blind people. It's not like he missed that point. But he's asking them to say it out loud because it's part of how we align ourselves. It's kind of the concept of prayer. It's why God wants us to pray. He wants us to say it. So he knows where we're at. A good teacher understands the developmental level of their students, right? If they say, make me heal my eyesight, that's one thing. If they say, fix my soul, that's a whole different level, right? So they said to him, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. So Jesus had compassion and he touched their eyes and immediately their eyes received sight and then the tagline and they followed him. The first thing they do with their new eyesight is they become, they go into the field and they join Jesus. It's just awesome. This is way more than these two guys deserve. Way more. They get to be followers of Christ right at the end. Like I, for the rest of their life, they can be like, yeah, I was a disciple. I was there too. You know, and, and, and they haven't been following Jesus for three years. They don't get named in the list of the 12. But from a worker's perspective, that might seem a little unfair. It might seem a little unfair that a thief on the cross is welcomed into the kingdom of heaven. It might seem unfair that we have family and friends that live in sin for 50 years and then they turn from their sin and they follow God in their old age. Amen to that. That's not a curse. 
unless we have eyes that are evil and we see it that way. It's an absolute blessing. It's what we should be praying for and working for. We should do like Jesus. What can I do for you? What do you want from me? How can I help you? How can I make your life better? With Christians and unchristians alike, what can we do to help out? I remember having coworkers that, frankly, we didn't see eye to eye on some things. It came Christmas time, and the temptation is, well, I'm not getting anything for them. And then you pray about it, and you're like, Lord, maybe the thing I can do to melt their heart is to give them a, be beyond, to give them a Christmas present anyway, and just to do something that's kind, even when I have people that, that I don't see eye to eye with on things. How can I help? What can I do? And they followed him. There's a clear spiritual change. They ask for physical healing, but it's obvious that there's spiritual healing that happens too. So they pick up and follow him. He drinks the cup that we can't drink. But the thing with the crucifixion is you can't kill life itself. He can suffer just like humans do, but he can't be killed the same way we are. So happy Resurrection Day. Like That's the, the thought on this. He rose and he became the greatest ransom ever known, the greatest propitiation for our sins, the most humble of condescensions of God coming down to earth. We can see it physically, and we can believe there's a crucifixion, but that's not the only purpose. The purpose is to come and follow him, to be changed, to be made new, so that we actually, 365, we follow the Lord, and we know he's risen. He's risen indeed. Because we can see we follow Jesus and we're grateful for it. And we give reasonable service of our lives in exchange for a life. Here's another thing, and this is just me being a geek. I want to go through this chapter real quick, and I'll close on this. Look at what Jesus says through this chapter and the the complete message of just kind of Jesus' words. And I'm going to take a few of them. Verse 7 Go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, you'll receive. Verse 14, I wish to give to this last man the same as you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I'm good? Verse 16, so the last will be first, and the first will be last. For many are called, but few are chosen. What do you wish? You don't know what you ask. The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Verse 26, whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. Verse 32, what do you want me to do for you? Help me see is our response. So Jesus had compassion and he touched their eyes. When Jesus asks us, what do you want me to do for you? I think the best answer we can give is the one Peter gave when he was sinking in the water. Lord, save me. And after we're saved, the best answer we can give is help me see. Help me have eyes. Help me to see what's going on. And it's much more than physical sight. It's a spiritual sight that we ask for. So Jesus finishes his walk to Jerusalem knowing he's going to get betrayed. Threefold betrayal. He gets betrayed by his friends. He gets betrayed by his nation. And then he gets betrayed by the world. Each one worse than the last. This world doesn't even want him. And he's willing to give everything. So we have to avoid that kind of certain death And just cry out as loud as we can, Lord, save me. Have mercy on me. I'm part of the world that betrayed you. I'm part of the church that abandons you. And even in my own heart, I've sinned against you. Lord, have mercy. And it's all we ask for. Praise God, he changed all the rules for us. He made it in a world where servants lead and leaders become servants. 
He also made a world where dead people rise. Changed everything. And get my composure before we pray. Lord, we just thank you for your gift of eternal life. We thank you for changing all of human knowledge on one pivot point, that there is no death if we don't want it. Lord, thank you for the invitation that we can all receive. Lord, thank you for the eternity that you've given evidence to and promised in history and documented that we could see it. Lord, thank you and bless those that have faith even if they don't see um, and bring those people we know that aren't in the kingdom, Lord. Bring them in. Bring in the harvest. And Lord, help us to be workers. And Lord, may there be enough time to where we're workers as long as we can be to help bring others into the kingdom and accept the gift of eternal life that you offered with such mercy and such grace. Thank you for your patient, calm, loving teaching that you gave to disciples that asked all the wrong questions and had so much wrong, just like we do. And Lord, thank you that you have mercy. Um, Lord, we just pray that we can take this joy that you've put in our hearts and share it with people. And Lord, there is a joy in my heart that you put there. I didn't do it. I know there's something different about me than there was, and it's spiritual. And Lord, it's all yours. You created it in me. You made a new person. So Lord, may we go forward as risen human beings with an awakened soul and eyes that see and ears that hear. And may we become exercising our humility for you like like an athlete so that we can run the race and we do it for the joy set before us. In Jesus' name. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.